Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Today on Brussels Sprouts, we're talking about European strategic autonomy, or the strengthening of Europe's military capabilities. Over the past five years, there have been persistent calls in Europe for greater strategic autonomy. While France in particular has championed the concept, it has gained traction within the European Union, having been incorporated into some of the bloc's key documents like the 2016 EU Global Strategy. So far, the United States has largely resisted calls for European strategic autonomy, viewing it as a challenge to NATO, likely to create military redundancy and an impractical ambition. However, there is increasing debate within the United States about whether Washington should change course and instead embrace a militarily stronger Europe given the scope of challenges that the United States faces, especially the concurrent challenges from both China and Russia. So today we're excited to welcome Hans Benendijk and Ambassador Sandy Verschbau, who recently wrote a piece in Defense News on these and other issues related to how the transatlantic partners might forge a new transatlantic agreement on strategic autonomy. Uh, welcome to Hans Benendijk and Ambassador Verschbau to the podcast. Welcome to you both. Great to be uh, here. As I think uh, you're both familiar to most of our listeners, but by brief background, Hans is a distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council. He formerly served as Senior Director for Defense Policy at the National Security Council and as Director of the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies. And Sandy is a distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council. He, previous, he had previous positions, including NATO Deputy Secretary General, a U.S. Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, and U.S. Ambassador to Russia. So you both have written a really wonderful piece uh, touching on this topic. So I think that's where I wanted to start. And I just want to kick it over to both of you. I think one of the central ideas in the piece that you put out is that now is the time for the United States to support calls for a more capable Europe. And I just want to hear kind of in your words, why? Like, why is this the time? What are you sensing? Um, why, why should the United States kind of embrace this argument? It's an argument I should say I agree with. Um, and I think, you know, your piece was a timely one, but just for our listeners kind of lay out the case. Well, why don't I say a couple of words, Sandy, and then uh, you can follow on. Uh, I think in terms of the specific timing, it had a lot to do uh, with the concerns uh, that were raised in Europe by the uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan and the way it was done, and also the uh, Australia submarine uh, deal. And uh, that those two events uh, resulted in increased calls from Europe for greater strategic autonomy, doubling down on what they've been saying for the last uh, five or six years. So you have that incoming from Europe. Uh, at the same time, as we look to Asia and the growing China challenge, military challenge, uh, the United States is looking to China as the pacing factor for our own defense posture in the future. Uh, that doesn't mean we're abandoning uh, Europe or NATO at all, but it does mean that there may be cases in which uh, we are engaged in Asia and we're not able to provide the level of support that um, Europe might expect from us. So for those and other reasons, uh, we thought this would be a good time to settle this debate that's been going on for uh, half a decade now uh, between the United States uh, that has been 
very reserved and, and concerned about where that might take us. Uh, and Europe and Macron in particular, um, who are pushing for this concept. So Andy, that, that's a start. Yes, that's great, Hans. And, and indeed, uh, that was the uh, the impetus for the article. And let me give Hans credit for taking the initiative to uh, to write the first draft and to recruit me, because we've been probably talking on, on similar terms for many years. And of course, this is not a brand new issue. Strategic autonomy is kind of the latest incarnation of, uh, of a de debate that's been going on for almost three decades on how can the European members of NATO, both inside NATO and through the European Union, uh, play a greater role in defense and security. And this debate has gone around in circles for three decades with little to show for it in terms of real results. Uh, and I think the US is partly to blame for the fact that there've been such limited re results because we've been deeply ambivalent about seeing the Europeans have greater responsibility exercise a bigger role uh, in NATO. We've, we've worried about duplication. We've worried about uh, possible loss of business for our defense industry. It's, there's been both high-minded concerns and uh, more, more uh, practical ones, shall we say. Uh, a lot of people say it was Donald Trump that uh, was particularly hostile his administration towards a greater role for Europe. But you can also go back to the late 80s, Madeleine Albright put the kibosh on what was an amazing initiative by Tony Blair and Jacques Chirac at uh, San Malo to uh, put together a stronger European reaction force that could take the lead in some situations when NATO was not engaged. So with these renewed doubts about US reliability, as Hans was saying, plus the the, the reality that the U.S. is going to now, for real, pivot to Asia and, and allocate more forces to the Indo-Pacific region, it seemed like an opportune moment to, uh, to to sort of make the case for coming to terms with the Europeans on this. And so I think that was the uh, uh, the thinking that inspired Hans to pick up his pen and uh, for me to, to sign on. Uh, what I see as the kind of the ultimate goal here, and I hope it's achievable because we've been disappointed by uh, the Europeans who talk a good game on this, but don't always deliver the capabilities to back it up, uh, that this time will be different, that we, we can see this as a, a means of achieving a much more balanced alliance, which I think is politically necessary. Burden sharing has been always a sore point. Uh, it's been oversimplified in this 2% debate. But now I think there's ways to show a greater sharing of responsibility uh, that is not only uh, sort of appropriate given Europe, Europe, Europe's economic power and, and the military capabilities that they do have, uh, but also now a strategic necessity with the need for the U.S. to shift the focus to the Indo-Pacific. So I think a more balanced alliance would mean uh, continued sharing of responsibility uh, on collective defense against Russia. We're not saying the U.S. should sh hand that off. And in fact, uh, on, the, on the contrary, Europe needs to contribute much more to collective defense in case there's a scenario in which the U.S. is tied down in Asia or has to posture a significant amount of its forces uh, in a Taiwan scenario or, or, or something less dramatic than that. 
so the Europeans need to do more on collective defense and, and they need to become the first responders when it comes to crisis management and ma managing the, the, the European neighborhood. And I think that would become a much more, more healthy uh, basis and uh, it would mean more responsibility, which can be defined in any way. Strategic autonomy isn't the only term to, to, to use for it, but I can live with the terminology if it means a real improvement in capabilities uh, that would actually lead to, to a much more balanced alliance. Well, uh, welcome to, to both of you as well from me. It's uh, two great colleagues who have, we've all been in the trenches since San Malo, if not before on this, on this issue. And uh, I, I wanna just give you um, a, a taste of what could be ahead as we talk about this. So Hans and I wrote a chapter in a book that was, that was along these lines as well that should come out pretty soon. And a, a month or two ago, Hans, I, in, a, in two think tank uh, roundtables, I floated the, the idea of this rebalancing uh, and, you know, very much along the lines of our chapter and also this, this, this piece that you all wrote. And I got some pretty quick pushback uh, some very, from some very well-known U.S. think tankers who we all know, uh, and they jumped on me pretty quick and said, Jim, this is, that would be a disaster. In fact, the quote was, Jim, you know better than most what would happen when, when if the U.S. were to say that we're going to rebalance and Europe is going to have to do more, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The Central East Europeans would go wild thinking the U.S. was pulling out of Europe, laying out the scenario that we know very well that, that uh, in the past we were afraid of, too, this idea of, of rebalance uh, even before the, the so-called pivot to to Asia that was you know, a few years ago, but even before then, as we talked about a rebalance, uh, or, or in fact, it was called the division of labor, which is quite a radioactive term, but it was called that back in the um, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago, that it, it does generate a lot of antibodies among uh, traditionalists, among Central East Europeans, among those who feel it's gonna give an out uh, for the United States to leave Europe. So how, how um, and I'll throw myself into this, how are we going to push back on that? What would you have said, uh, both of you, uh, to these prominent US think tankers who are also good friends of ours, how do you push back on that and say, uh, look, I understand where you're coming from, but this time it's different? Well, the first thing I would say, Jim, and uh, uh, you and I have been talking also about this issue for quite some time now. The first thing I would say is that, uh, the definition of uh, European strategic autonomy is all over the place. Um, it, some people talk about it as the right to make sovereign decisions uh, in Europe. Of course, that's true. Uh, others talk about uh, the, uh, not just to make the decisions, but then to have the capability to act when and where uh, they need to. Uh, and that is hopefully where we're going. Uh, if you look uh, to uh, the Poles and the Baltic states, they are concerned that this will be misinterpreted and it'll be, it'll be uh, uh, the beginning of a design to take the United States uh, out of NATO. That is not at all uh, what we have in mind. Uh, in fact, strategic autonomy doesn't necessarily mean um, uh, that it would be done by the European Union or by a, a cluster of European nations. You can have strategic autonomy and everything goes with it within the context of the NATO alliance. Mechanisms have been set up uh, uh, about uh, 
two decades ago, we created uh, the Berlin Plus mechanism, which allows the European deputy, Sakur, to command European forces. Those forces aren't there in adequate numbers to do many of these missions. So you can take strategic autonomy and you can put it right at the heart of NATO. So that's, that's the way I would uh, begin to answer that question, Jim. Yeah, I agree with all that. Uh, yes, the Central and East Europeans are going to immediately uh, worry that sh sharing more responsibility with the Europeans is a step towards the US, not, not necessarily disengaging from its role in defending Europe against the Russians, but substantially downgrading our commitment. Uh, right. And uh, we need to be attentive to that because that certainly would not be the, the aim. The aim is to be sure that we still have the collective capacity, and that means Europe plus the United States, to deter and, defend, and defend against Russia. And it may require, partially for reasons of reassurance, partially for reasons of, of prudence in terms of actual defense capacity, to beef up some of the uh, contingents that we have now, both NATO and the US, in uh, Northeastern Europe. Uh, the Russian threat today is perhaps more severe in some respects, given their continued buildup of A2AD capabilities in Kaliningrad and in Crimea, uh, the, the, you know, the, the deployment of intermediate range missiles, uh, hypersonics, all kinds of new dimensions to the Russian threat. We, we may have good reason to actually beef up some of, some of the forward deployed capabilities to deter the Russians. Uh, but, uh, but inevitably, the demands of deterring China and maintaining security in the Indo-Pacific are inevitably going to draw away some resources and some strategic attention from the United States. And uh, the Central and East Europeans should join us in seeing this as an opportunity to see Europe and particularly the major European military powers to do more both for collective defense and for non-Article 5 roles that may uh, uh, not be as easily uh, led by the United States as, as in the past. Uh, so uh, so you know, we, we're, we're ready, for the, ready for the criticisms. Uh, but I think that uh, maintaining US interest and commitment to, to the alliance in terms of political support from the Congress and the public uh, will depend at least in, in, in small measure on the Europeans getting more serious about burden sharing. And spend, spending is only a crude measure the key is real capabilities. It's going to be expensive, uh, but if, if they want strategic autonomy, uh, as defined as greater strategic responsibility, then they're going to have to go to their publics and, and justify the enhanced budgets that are going to be necessary to back it up. I want to sure. get to kind of how we might think about and measure those capabilities. Cons, I know you talk about the kind of the levels of ambition, but before I do that, I just, it's maybe a different iteration of Jim's question, because my sense is that a lot of times when people are talking about strategic autonomy, a lot of that is really about strengthening the European pillar within NATO. I think when a lot of people talk about it, it isn't necessarily taking place in NATO, and it is very much about, you know, that European pillar. That's where, you know, what, you know, the Brits, for example, are strongly opposed to that. And I still think you hear a lot of voices in Germany and other places, you know, the NATO Secretary General, who offer some kind of cautionary rhetoric about going down that path. So as you think about what this means, a more capable Europe, 
when you both talk about it, are you talking about having that happen through NATO or is there a role for strengthening the European pillar? Can this be an EU thing? Well, I think it's both and it depends very much on the mission. Uh, if we are dealing uh, with a Russian threat, for example, a major peer competitor, NATO is probably gonna be the instrument that you use. Uh, if it's an operation, a crisis management operation uh, in North Africa, that may be the EU or a lead nation, a European lead nation that uses these assembled capabilities. So much depends on the mission and we need to create command structure arrangements and procedures to allow us to use these different institutions depending upon the nature of the mission. I just wanted to add one other thought to Jim's question of a moment ago. And that is, I don't think we see strategic autonomy as something that you simply declare on a day. I mean, you try to, you, you need to define it and agree on it, but it's not a light switch. You know, yesterday you didn't have strategic autonomy, today you do. It's a rheostat. It's going to take time, it's a process, because to really have a higher degree of strategic autonomy, Europe is going to have to build enablers. Uh, uh, such as refueling capability, attack helicopters, UAVs, et cetera. If you look at the enablers that are needed to conduct these operations, the United States uh, possesses some 70 to 100%, depending upon the category of enabler, of these enablers. So this is going to mean a lot of defense investment. And you, we can do this in ways that it's not excessively redundant. But this... I, I underline that because it's not something you can do tomorrow. It's going to take time for Europe to build these capabilities, but you got to get started now. Uh, that's absolutely correct. Uh, we need to both define strategic autonomy and recognize that it's going to take time to actually implement, even in the best case. Uh, in my, my view, the idea of a stronger European pillar has always been a kind of a, a refuge for those who are suspicious of the French. They say, no, we don't want to have an EU-led uh, process. We want uh, something that's you know, NATO-friendly, which means a, a stronger pillar within NATO. But I think what we're talking about here is sort of seeing NATO itself become more of a two-pillar alliance with a, the now much weaker European pillar growing in strength and readiness and deployability so that Europeans can, uh, can do more, particularly if the US is tied down somewhere else. Uh, but at the same time, it allows a range of options for Europe to take the initiative in crisis management, whether it's could, could be within NATO using the Berlin Plus uh, framework to have this deputy SACUR uh, and elements of the NATO command structure kind of devolved to Europe and the, the mission could be under the NAC or it could be under the uh, European Council, uh, uh, or it could be a an EU-led mission or some hybrid coalition. There's a lot, lots of ways to do it. And clearly there'll have to be thorough consultation. This has always been an issue to, to determine you know, when the, the European option is the best and the most efficient and when uh, a more NATO-centric approach is needed. Uh, NATO's used this ambiguous phrase, when NATO is not engaged, that doesn't sort of say, well, who, who decided that NATO is not engaged. Uh, but uh, but I, you know, I think part of the exercise since uh, the NATO 2030 initiative was launched was to improve political consultations 
so we have better ways to address these things and some of the suspicions associated with this can therefore be progressively allayed. Uh, oh, I, I appreciate those responses. I think they're, I, I, I agree with them too, but let me, I'm gonna make one comment and then a, and then a, then a suggestion and see what you think. But the comment is in terms of Berlin plus, I think as we, as we think about how this European pillar or the EU as a military uh, you know, a capability going out and doing a mission using Berlin Plus as a facilitator, we're going to probably have to rethink that um, because, you know, the, the deputy Sackier is a Brit, so I'm not sure <laughs> how well that's going to work. But, but, but that aside, I think, I think Berlin Plus has some, such baggage that I think we're going to need to come up with a, with, with a, a structure that's probably more appropriate to, to, um, to today. But, but the suggestion is this. We've been talking about the back end of what this European capability could look like or what the pillar could look like. You know, we enablers, we've been talking about enablers, we've been talking about, uh, you know, the kinds of missions we want them to do, but I'm going to turn our focus to the front end of it uh, and the defense planning side of it, because because uh, you're both right, this is going to take a long time, and it is a reostat, Hans, as, we've, as we have said many times. It's something that's, uh, that, that actually, though, to really put teeth into and make it, make it real, we're going to have to um, start now, I agree, and know that this is going to be a long game, know that this is going to be expensive, but we've got to get our planning straight up front to know what it is that the European uh, capability needs to look like, what do they really need, and towards what end, uh, versus what NATO would, would be doing, you know, as we look at a rebalance, or what the U.S., might be doing so as as you as i think about it you know you've got the strategic compass that the eu is putting together you've got the nato strategic concept that we will hopefully uh put to bed at the uh, madrid summit next year so both of those uh and though both of those documents give us a good roadmap on where heads of state and government want these two respective institutions to go uh and uh and kind of generally what the ambition is and, and of course both institutions take those documents and they go back and then they begin to plan for, okay, how do we reach those goals? Of course, with, the, with NATO, it's, it's the ministerial guidance and this type of thing. And, and pretty soon uh, over time, force goals and defense planning comes together to make sure allies bring to the table those assets that uh, we'll need in the alliance to meet what the strategic concept lays out for us to do. Well, in the EU, they've got a different system, although it increasingly starts to look like what we're doing, but still they've got their own system. But I really think that what we need to do is to start off with at least both of both institutions understanding generally where it is they both wanna go uh, and how they would relate to one another. And then as we go about our various versions of defense planning and getting ready to actually do that, that we do it in closer, you know, right now there's informal staff consultations, but if we do it in a more, in a closer way, and that's not day by day sitting next to each other doing it, but doing it in such a way that the EU works towards a European capability that makes sense vis-a-vis -vis what NATO is going to be doing uh, so that the Europeans at a minimum have a better idea of what those gaps are specifically that they should be able to, 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 to meet uh, in order to take on that European role. Uh, if we don't have that kind of the defense planning upfront on this, uh, then it could be that uh, the EU planning takes them in a direction that isn't as mutually supportive of what we want Europe to do. Uh, you know, and, uh, and I, think, I think that's something we have to think about is how do we coordinate, not dictate, 
but how do we coordinate our respective defense planning so that we have a good idea of what NATO's gonna bring to the table and what the Europeans through the EU would bring to the table? What do you think about that? And, really, and the other thing to just to inject to, you know, so Lloyd Austin was at the defense ministerial and kind of threw it over to the Europeans to say like, hey guys, over to you to decide what capabilities you you want to, to develop. You know, how, how to, I don't know if you want to weave that into your response well, because that felt very misguided. Like Jim's yeah, saying, it's got to be close consultation. And not yeah. just whatever, you know, it's like a potluck dinner telling the Europeans, yeah, bring whatever you want to the dinner. And they bring potato <laughs> chips and we bring potato chips. And it's like, well, wait a minute. So how do you, you know, how do we do this? Nobody brings the beef. <laughs> That's right. There's no beef. So first of all, this does have to be coordinated uh, to some degree of detail. Uh, and Jim, you mentioned not just the strategic um, concept, but also the EU compass, which is going to be next year, so early next year. So now is the time. If we want to get uh, common views into these two documents, which are supposed to be lasting for a decade and will set the pace for where, where the, these institutions are going to go on security issues, now is the time to get agreement so that that agreement can be embedded in these two different documents, the NATO document and the EU document. Right. So that's the first point. Now is the time to do it so we can embed it. Then the question is how, what mechanism do you use? How do you get from a broad generalization down to the detailed defense planning that you were referring to? Right. The middle step there in my view is, and Henry just mentioned this, it's the level of ambition. NATO has a level of ambition uh, for the entire alliance. And that to me is a tool that can be used. Uh, and for example, uh, the current NATO um, level of ambition is two major uh, operations, joint operations, and six smaller joint operations. Well, Europe ought to be able to do half of that. So do one major and three smaller ones. Uh, and the geographic focus of that uh, is going to be uh, probably North Africa, the Middle East, uh, maybe the Balkans. Um, so that's where I would start. Uh, and if you look at the strategic compass, for example, that, that is focusing primarily on crisis management. I saw very little in, the, in, uh, in that document, the earlier iterations of it, that focus on you know, the EU dealing alone uh, with a, a threat from Russia. They're talking about crisis management operations. So that is consistent with what we're saying. Yeah, I agree. Not, not that much to add. Uh, there clearly has to be coordination, and this process should start now. It's particularly opportune because NATO, having just adopted this, these new plans for the defense and deterrence of the Euro-Atlantic area, is going to be going through the process of defining kind of new capability targets, minimum military requirements, all these things, which I don't fully understand uh, how the process works, but uh, this is especially important that this be that the, the, the greater role for Europe in crisis management be incorporated in this because those operations are going to be lesser included cases for the, for the, the large scale scenarios that NATO defense planners need to prepare for. Uh, so uh, at the end of the day, the Europeans are sovereign states, they'll have to make their own decisions individually and in, uh, in, in the EU framework. But finding an early way to lash up the, the the processes, however asymmetrical they may be, 
uh, is, is an essential short-term short uh, objective. Uh, on, uh, Jim, you mentioned Berlin Plus may not be uh, feasible because of all the baggage associated with that. I, I agree, but uh, it's too bad. It was, I think, a, a very well-crafted uh, approach. Uh, I guess it's technically been used for the Bosnia Operation Althea, but uh, that's not really a great example of uh, multinational coalition operations. Uh, but uh, we may have to reinvent the wheel here. Uh, I think you're Berlin right. Plus is, uh, is politically toxic at this point. It is in Paris, I know that. So we just talked about, you know, without coordination, we all bring the potato chips and no one brings the beef. Um, but that, I mean, I think that's the question is, What's the political will in Europe? Are, are they willing to bring the main courses to the table? Are they willing to step up? How, you, you know, what's your sense of where Europeans are in their thinking on this? Do you see and sense political will that now is the time for Europeans? We're saying from a US perspective, and it's notable that this is a shift, right? That the United States is now saying, yes, we want a more capable Europe. But what are you hearing from the allies themselves? Is, are, are they ready, you know, thinking about Germany? And you know, we, you know, we've done on this podcast before thinking about what the German election there means, and it sounds like there's not likely to be a significant shift in German thinking about the defense industry and what they're willing to take on geopolitically. So, you know, is this again the United States kind of putting out these feelers and these signals that we would like Europe to do more? But do you what are what are your expectations about Europe's ability to actually deliver? And let me add to that, if I can, what's the expectation about the U.S. ability to deliver, too? Because I've heard lots of great rhetoric uh, out of the, the administration, uh, but I've heard no nothing concrete except for that the, the point that uh, Austin made, which, which was made me fearful that, in fact, we haven't done a lot of thinking uh, in the administration about what does this really mean? How does it translate? Are we just you know, giving a lot of uh, rhetoric uh, to the French and to the Europeans about this. And then when they say, well, how do we do this? They, they, it's crickets in, in the administration. Well, I think German, Germany is clearly going to be slow to come around to this, although you do hear voices, uh, German voices uh, championing strategic uh, autonomy. Uh, Ursula von der Leyen, for example. Uh, so you, you hear that rhetoric uh, whether Germany itself is willing to step up and get anywhere near the 2% uh, defense expenditures um, is, is questionable. But, uh, you know, I think there's another factor that we haven't mentioned in all of this, which may stimulate Europe a bit. Uh, and that has to do with the possible return of Trumpism in the United States. And this is something, Jim, that you and I have written about. Um, and if you are sitting there in Europe and you look at the political situation in the United States, it's not just potential pivot to Asia uh, and potential uh, um, conflict with China, which leaves Europe more vulnerable, but it's also the possibility uh, that if not uh, President Trump, uh, someone a lot like him uh, might return to the Oval Office. And if I were sitting in Europe, uh, I would, uh, I'd be prepared to, to uh, spend a lot more money uh, to try to deal with that contingency. Yeah, that's, uh, 
that, that might persuade at least a few uh, those who are on, uh, sitting on the fence about whether to uh, support this. Uh, but overall, my impression, and I don't have uh, the sort of systematic contacts with allies that I used to have in my NATO role, uh, my sense is that apart from France, there is still not that much enthusiasm for this. And I think in the, in the case of Germany, well, we'll see what changes come with the new government when it finally is formed. Uh, I think there's going to be continued ambivalence about this because of their fear, similar to that of the East Europeans, that this could lead to a much more substantial U.S. pullout or disengagement than they uh, think is uh, prudent. So they you know, may pay lip service to this in, in EU councils, but they may be ambivalent in, in the real world. And then, of course, the East Europeans will have a say. Uh, in, in both NATO and in the EU on uh, how far this, this goes. But, but I think that's an asset for the United States. Oh, you're signaling each other. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, that, I think that's actually an asset for the United States. I think we can be kind of the honest brokers here and trying to make this work in a way that fulfills the political ambitions over, of, uh, of the French and, and other Europeans over time. Uh, produces a much more capable partner for the United States, able to act in, in contingencies where we uh, don't have the time or the resources to do it. Uh, and at the same time, make sure that this is a win-win. It is a two-pillar strategy for deterring Russia, that it's not uh, uh, going to be a disproportionate reduction in the U.S. contribution to collective defense. Sandy, I, I agree with, with that point uh, very much, uh, particularly that it's the U.S. is going to really be up to the U.S. to make this work. It's not going to be France and, and maybe a, a, a coalition of French uh, allies there that, that would bring home this uh, European approach. It's, they're going to need the U.S. To, go, to be part of this and to give confidence to those who are doubtful, whether it's Germany on the one hand or Central East Europeans on the other hand, those that that, that don't see um, the future being one led by 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 Paris, I, but I but I you know as you were talking I was thinking also that as we look at the cost of this, uh, you look at a at an ally a, a middle level ally uh, that's got a tight defense budget, they have trouble meeting their own capability goals in the alliance, uh, and now suddenly they're going to have capability goals from NATO as well as the European Union and in some fashion again it won't be like the way NATO does it but but there'll be some demands that the EU says, hey, we need the, these assets from you. You've got to play a role in this uh, if we're gonna have a, a strong Europe. And so I, it's, this, is, this is gonna make it even harder for, for the United States, but also particularly for France and others to bring, to bring the nations along because there's gonna be a price tag to it. We said it's gonna be expensive and, uh, and it's not just the purchasing of, 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 of big assets, you know, re, whether it's refueling tankers or whatever, but the fact that um, EU member allies are going to have, um, you know, they're going to they're be, uh, you know, two sets of demands that conceivably will be on their plate to meet, one coming out of the EU, one coming out of NATO. And in terms of the European pool of forces, uh, you know, whatever the French may be dreaming about in the longer term, they can't do this without some of the key non-EU members, particularly the UK, which took 20% of the EU's military capability out of the EU with Brexit. Uh, and I think it's, it's a figure that Stoltenberg likes to quote all the time that 
80% of NATO's defense spending, defense spending comes from outside, from countries that are outside the EU. That's right. Uh, and there's also Norway, which is a significant contributor. And then there's Turkey, which could become a, a disruptive force if some of the issues of consultation uh, with the non-EU allies aren't handled delicately by, by the French. So the US can help, but only so far. The Europeans themselves have to reassure uh, non-EU allies if, that they're gonna have a say in decision-making and command and control of any future operations they contribute to, uh, or else uh, their capabilities will be uh, off limits to, uh, to those who wanna practice strategic autonomy. That's right. So just one other thought. Um, there are other ways to reassure our allies that strategic autonomy doesn't mean the United States walking away from NATO. Uh, these, the, one looks to the future contingencies and you can realize that there are scenarios in which we may not be able to reinforce adequately. Right. Uh, and that's what we're guarding against. But in terms of sort of walking away from commitments, uh, I think all of us at some point or another have suggested uh, the deployment of some more uh, U.S. forces uh, on a persistent basis in the Baltic states. And the Black we've been doing in Poland. Mm -hmm. and, and, so and one could envision that accompanying uh, a, a move towards agreement on what strategic autonomy is and how we get there. Uh, that would be to have the United States commit to put some more American troops in the Baltic states to reassure. It doesn't have to be a lot, but enough so that we don't create the mistaken impression, not only in Europe, but in Moscow, right. that we're walking away from this. Right, and I, I, Hans, I would add the Black Sea in there as well in terms right. of a persistent presence. We have somewhat of that now, but you know, we had a hearing uh, two days ago on this, and I think there seems to be a bit of a groundswell growing that uh, we need to do more there in the Black Sea too, both NATO and the, the US. So all, you know, you both have mentioned, you know, the strategic concept coming up. Um, what do you, what do you think should be the spirit of the language or the spirit of the way that the strategic concept treats this issue of strategic autonomy? I mean, obviously the UK is going to have a particular view on it. I mean, I know it's really early and we haven't you know, thought, I don't know if you've thought in that level of detail just yet, but as we're moving towards putting this into action, what is the spirit that you would want to see NATO capture? And I got, you know, one of the things, and maybe this is a non sequitur, but, you know, I was just thinking to myself too, we're asking a lot of NATO, right? So we're talking, a, a, you know, we're talking about Russia, we're talking about crisis management, China now is on the, the agenda in a big way. Are we running the risk now that NATO is being spread too thin? We're asking them to be more capable, but are those capabilities, are we asking that they're covering too many bases? And so maybe those aren't related questions, but I just put them both out there. Well, this is precisely a way to attain those capabilities that we need uh, for that broader uh, menu of things that NATO needs to do. Uh, and I would cast this as a maturing uh, of the uh, alliance uh, and as Sandy said a moment ago, a better uh, balancing within the alliance. Or Hans, would you say that some of the China stuff is distracting unnecessarily? Like NATO's core mission, core focus has to be on Russia. 
is it, are, is it a distraction from that core mission? And should it really be NATO that we're asking to play such a role on China? Isn't the Europe, I mean, it's back to that question of, you know, of certainly the EU plays a role on all sorts of things related to, to addressing China. But are we distracting from what NATO's core mission should be by asking them to take on this China challenge? Shouldn't the capabilities really be focused on Russia and kind of that Euro-Atlantic theater? I don't think anybody is suggesting that European military capabilities should also be pivoting to Asia to deal with China. Um, I think uh, there are a number of things we can do in the strategic concept. Well, short of that, uh, we're not going to extend a security commitment, and, a, a NATO security commitment, say, to Taiwan or Japan. Uh, but, uh, and Sandy and I have talked about this, I think a um, one could conceive of a, a partnership of NATO and uh, our Asian allies, uh, sort of a, an expanded version, perhaps even of the uh, Enhanced Oppor Opportunity Partnership, or a new one where you have a cluster of four or five major Asian allies forming a partnership together with NATO, very much the way we have done uh, uh, with the Istanbul cooperation initiative, for example, except much more robust. Yeah, yeah I, th I think it's NATO is ultimately going to deal with only some aspects of the Chinese security challenge. I mean, it is a multi-dimensional one. China is becoming more active in and around Europe, so it can't be ignored by, by the Europeans. Uh, but on the military level, to use that phrase, first responder, I think NATO is not going to be the the first or the primary responder. As Hans said, the US, maybe with, with, with some coordination with NATO, will work in a coalition of the willing framework like AUKUS, the, the Quad, and some of these mechanisms involving the states from the region. Uh, but there's so many other dimensions. There's the security threats from uh, technology, 5G. Uh, there's their expanding political footprint in uh, areas around Europe, in the Arctic, and the Horn of Africa, the impact of the Belt and Road Initiative on uh, our, our wider interests in Central Asia and other, other regions. So there's a lot of things that NATO needs to think about and perhaps engage selectively in, uh, but it's not going to be the primary uh, responder uh, to, to, to China, certainly not in the military uh, area. But I think that there may be ways to express that in the strategic concept. Uh, I think NATO's done pretty well in coming to common language in the Brussels summit, in the uh, reflection group report. I think allies, well, they're not all on the same page yet. I think recognize that there are dimensions of the Chinese challenge that have to be dealt with by NATO, but not the whole comprehensive strategy. And uh, on, on what the strategic concept should say, uh, uh, as I said earlier, I think some kind of formula regarding a more balanced alliance, maybe the words strategic autonomy may be controversial for that for that particular document. Uh, but I the key is to get the spirit of what we're trying to achieve, which is uh, a stronger European role in collective defense and a lead role uh, over time, backed by capabilities and enablers in uh, Europe's immediate neighborhood. Uh, I think this would take the whole burden sharing debate to a much more constructive level, uh, but it still leaves a lot of pressure on those Europeans to, to spend more, uh, whether it's quantified or not as 2%. Uh, 
You know, this has to end up being real strategic autonomy and not pretend strategic autonomy, uh, which, which unfortunately previous renditions uh, have amounted to that. You know, it's interesting to see uh, if this is launched the way you were just saying, Sandy, and I, and I agree with what you had to say, and you too, Hans, but it'll be interesting to see over time as uh, the French particularly, because I would imagine they would take a lead role in trying to get the European nations to move in that right direction. It'd be interesting to see how the, the French and the EU deal with the same problems that NATO deals with now in terms of nations putting the money forward. You know, we've, we put nations on the hot seat, we name and shame every now and then, we do these kinds of things. Uh, and I think the uh, France and the EU uh, will have the same problem with the, some of the same nations, uh, having nations within that European context come forward uh, with capabilities. But, but let me ask you, I'm gonna turn back to the, to the US. Where do you think we are on all of this? Have you, in your discussions with the administration here and there or in the media speeches, uh, where are where are we? I I I I've been trying to find, um, and I've talked to them to, to try to get some specifics. Just what are you thinking? You know, beyond the uh, rhetoric that we've heard, uh, we support you know European. You know, what 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 would you offer us as an initiative? How can we approach it? Some of the things that we've been talking about here on this podcast. Have you heard anything out of the administration on an approach, or is it still just in the rhetoric stage? I've, I've had a few conversations uh, via Zoom and e email primarily uh, with a few people, but I can't say I have a real feel for the pulse uh, on this issue, but there seems to be an openness to um, making this work in, in a way that was clearly impossible with the last administration, but even uh, during uh, the Obama administration uh, did, didn't pan out either. Uh, but but all point to the devil being in the details and ensuring that this isn't uh, a kind of liberation strategy in, 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 in disguise, uh, but that this is meant to, to, to positively contribute to a stronger alliance and, and, and bring real capabilities with it. Right. Uh, and of course, the, uh, the French themselves, even as they call for the rest of the Europeans to spend more on defense, are gonna have trouble you know, staying above the 2% level uh, much less building those missing enablers that uh, right now they borrow gratis from uh, from the U.S. for operations such as the one in Mali. Uh, their level of ambition for this initial entry force uh, is uh, just something like 6,000 troops, far cry from the uh, 60,000 rapid reaction force that was envisaged at San Malo. So... Uh, you know, talk is cheap, but uh, capabilities are not. I, I think that's right. I have the same sense that uh, Sandy does. There's a bit more openness to an idea like this. Uh, I would also say that there's a, a consensus among uh, most of those who I talk to that we probably push the 2% concept about as far as we can uh, and that we need to find ways to reinvigorate um, the incentives uh, for Europe to do more. And this is one way to do that. That's right. No, I, I, I agree. In fact, Hans, I think in that chapter we wrote, uh, I think this survived the editors, uh, this idea that in fact, this gives the uh, 
the Europeans a real target to shoot at. It's no longer just a theoretical thing, meeting a 2% or you know, meeting some kind of rhetoric out of NATO, but this is gonna be a real need if they're gonna be taking on uh, a filling a vacuum potentially or taking on a mission that uh, the US will be unable to take on, they've gotta be ready. And so it certainly gives a, hopefully would give a bit of a more of a charge to them to make this happen. Uh, but uh, being being an old defense planner, I'll believe, I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> I think we're pushing up on time. I, Sandy, I love your quote there that talk is cheap and capabilities are not. Maybe that should be the title of this episode. But <laughs> that okay. was this. Um, I just that, wanted... that may portray me as overly hostile or skeptical <laughs> towards, which I, I genuinely would like to see it work. No, but I've I been around the track. I was involved in the Berlin formula before they went to Berlin Plus in the 90s. Right. And uh, I was ambassador to NATO d during the uh, Sam Malo episode. Uh, and I came back after uh, some years away from uh, NATO policy to find it was deja vu all over again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanna thank you for joining us. I mean, obviously this is an issue that has been around for a very long time, but it's kind of gotten a new um, momentum, I think after Afghanistan and AUKUS, and it does feel as your article conveyed, like this is an opportunity to actually push this forward a little bit. So thank you for your article and thank you for joining us. Um, and we hope that we get to continue having this discussion. You all underscored very well about how much coordination this is gonna take to make it happen effectively. And so I think conversations like this are really helpful. So hopefully we can continue to have them as we move forward. So thanks, thanks again.